Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. We're sitting down with 25 masters of the design industry. And you've, if you've joined us over the last couple of weeks, and if you're anything like Jared and me, you know that you've been learning a lot. We've been learning a lot. And we're going to continue to learn. We're learning how the best companies in the world approach, communicate, and deploy design every single day. In this episode, we're speaking with Andrea Mallard. Andrea is the CMO at Omada Health. She'll focus on how to use design as a connective tissue, how to enter new industries with a beginner's mind, and how to lead with manifestos and storytelling. And we'll get to this episode right after this partner message, so stick around. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Whether you need a domain, a website, or an online store, make your next move with Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com and enter the code HIGHRESOLUTION, one word, for 10% off your first purchase. Andrea, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I almost got that right. And I'll, I'll Andrea, you got it. Andrea is great. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Leave that in. We're going to put that in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That should be in there because yeah. people should know how to pronounce yes. that name. Yes, yes. Yeah. Andrea, All right. yeah. All right. Andrea, thanks for joining us. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right, so starting off, um, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is so clear to other people? I think it's that design is not a department, right? It's a discipline. And I think a lot of people think, well, we need to infuse design in organizations, so let's hire two designers, or let's hire 10 designers, and they'll sit in the design room on the design floor and do design. Um, that is a total misunderstanding of what design is. You know, it's a muscle that needs to be infused throughout an organization. It's not a person that needs to be parachuted into an organization. So for me, I think it's about understanding design as the verb, rather than design as the job title. Okay. What, what, so if you could just dive into the muscle. Yeah. First. So that's the first time I'm hearing that word being used to yeah. describe, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, do you mean that it is a, like, does everyone exercise that muscle, right? Um, or do the designers exercise it, but with other kind of people around them? Like, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think certainly great designers, what they do is they bring a design consciousness or design thinking into uh, an organization. I but I think the, the secret is to make people aware that they too can do great design. And we, we're all designers, right? So I always say, like, you are a designer. Yeah. Whether you choose to do it or not is a separate issue. But right now, right. your, your non-decisions or your non-design decisions are themselves designed decisions. Mm -hmm. So let's all be aware that we are all, even if you're the CFO, you are making decisions that influence the customer experience or the user experience. Therefore, you are designing what this company does and how it shows up to the world. Um, what I think design thinking allows you to do is have a new level of consciousness about that yeah. and to say, I'm actually going to learn how to do this in a way that de-risks go-to-market, mm -hmm. that involves our user in a smarter way, that prototypes and iterates and tries and fails and gets feedback and then goes to market. That's just, for me, smart business. Uh, it happens to be called design, but I think even the most backward-looking CEO can get behind that as an idea that, yeah, I would like to de-risk going to market. Actually, design is a wonderful way to do that. And that is what design a designer can bring to the table. That's why I think it's so important that they don't show up as if they are magic fairies that yeah. do some, something beautiful in the corner and they make my work look beautiful. That is, that's not design at all, in my opinion. Uh, it might be corporate identity or it might be graphic work, but true design is about bringing an organization, rallying an organization around this idea that we are going to follow certain principles as we develop new ideas and as we grow as a company. 
And how does the designer do that? Like outside of the actual day-to-day -day work that you do at yeah. your computer sitting down in your yeah. corner with your fellow designers around you, yeah. you speak about this connective tissue about yes. getting the rest of the company bought in. Right. How does the designer actually do that? Yeah, this, this is such a good question. So let's pretend you are the first designer at a very traditional, let's say, Fortune 500 company for whom design has passed them by or the, yeah. this idea and they're just operating the way they used to. The advice I would give a designer, so for example, when I started here, and, and this is a design-led company, so design was part of the DNA, and that was part of the reason that, that I was brought here. But um, if I talk to, say, a commercial team or a sales team, they were used to non-design roles. They were used to like, oh, well, we, we'll just go with this PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't matter. No one cares. Don't worry. And I wasn't going to convince them that it mattered by saying, no, it really does matter, and let's have a conversation about that. What I did was said, cool, can I, can I, can I get your deck, though, back? Can I have it? I just want to reread it. Mm. I would reread it the first time. Not only did I redesign it, or did we redesign the look and feel so that it felt on brand, but we rewrote the story. I was like, you're telling a very dense, terrible story that no one wants to listen to, and I need the conversation that you have with a potential customer of ours to feel different from day one, mm. from the first second. And design is a beautiful way to do that. So if they're used to a hundred slide PowerPoint decks with 10 point font and 20 bullets per slide and just dense, dense pain. Yeah. I'm gonna come with a delightful story that feels like you're reading them, uh, reading them a great novel, for example, or that you're just intriguing them all the way along. So when we redid the deck and sent it back to them, they were bought in like that. Sure. You know, yeah. they didn't, they couldn't intellectually get there with me, mm -hmm. but when they, when you show it rather than tell it, I think people get on board really, really fast. So I always say to designers, yeah show me what you mean, or show them what you mean, don't tell them what you mean, just to get that started. Yeah. By the way, those same people who were, might have been a bit skeptical about like, why do we need to make this that way, yeah. were so proud to stand up and deliver that keynote. Yeah. You know? And then they get behind it, and now they don't want the, the, old. the old version yeah. anymore. They just yeah. want, they want, so they're bought in all of a sudden. Yeah. The, 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 I actually, the big thing about that, though, so you, you take this deck and you kind of make that magic happen, yeah. right? Um, but earlier you said design, is this muscle that needs to be exercised across the organization. Sure. I'm just curious, so on the one hand, yeah. you do the work to make design part of the conversation. On yes. the other hand, you bring, you could bring design principles to the organization right. and, and democratize it so everyone understands yeah. how, you got, how you arrived to a better story in yes. that deck. Yes. Um, what are you doing today to help people um, at Omada or really anywhere, your peers in the industry, to think about how to exercise that muscle so that they can problem solve using design principles? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of it is about, there's so many good examples of beautifully designed experiences now. For the yeah. In the last 10 years, that has changed a lot, right? So if you think back to that early example about presentations, the truth is, is everyone knows presentations are boring and no one really wants to sit through them. So a lot of what I did when you hand back over a better story and a better illustrated designed experience is you tap into what they know to be true, which is, like I didn't, I wouldn't want to be in the audience of my own presentation either before, yeah. you know? Sure. And when you can get them to think that way and, and, and say like, you know, what's the, do you want to go to the DMV today? Or would you rather, you know, do this, have this amazing online experience? Like they can start to realize there's a lot of pain in their everyday life, undesigned pain. I think like step one is making them realize like we can make this delightful and beautiful and then helping them deconstruct a little bit like what we do isn't magic you know I had when we talk about how to do a sales pitch we talk about the principles of how Pixar builds a movie right like there's some standard narrative arcs that are 
that go back through millennia that humans respond to, right? And these are knowable things. And even someone who doesn't think they're a good writer and doesn't think they're a designer, if you could break down what makes a Pixar movie so effective to them, and if I can layer that now onto your sales presentation, like the world opens up to them. And they get really, really excited about that. You know, they can transpose that idea, that strategy, that design strategy onto their own work. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that's what I mean by building the muscle. I don't expect them to write great copy mm -hmm. or to redesign yeah. their website, yeah. but I expect them to suddenly see it matters. It has a real business impact. It's not a creative indulgence mm -hmm. that these design fairies in the corner just want me to believe in. Yeah. You know, they see right away that everyone in that room was more engaged. Everyone perked up. Everyone looked at each other when I went, got to slide one because I asked a really bold, provocative question and it was in big, bold type and whatever it might have been to get their attention. That's, that's obvious business impact right yeah. there. Awesome. It's teaching a purpose. It's not designed yeah. for the sake of design. No, yeah. no. And I mean, like things can get over-designed and we have yeah. lots of examples of that where we just go, Let's, we're, we are circling the drain yeah. here. Like, come on, get back out of this. This doesn't matter. Um, but I can always tell even in writing, I know when writers are just writing for other writers yeah. versus when writers are writing for their audiences. And I hate the first and I love the second, you know? So we have yeah. to learn to design for the people for whom we're actually trying to serve, you know? So you've spoken about stories, yeah. you've spoken about arcs, Pixar. Yeah. I'm, I'm noticing a trend here yeah. of a storytelling. Yes. Um, yeah. So a fascinating fact about you is you actually studied journalism yes. in school. And yes. the first five or six years of your career was in the journalism field? Yeah. Tell us about that. Media. So when I was in high school and university, I really didn't know anything about what my potential career options were. I certainly didn't know anything about design. It had never crossed my mind. There were fine artists, and then there were business people. I mean, that was sort of yeah. how I divided the world. Yeah. Um, so. What I realized, though, is that I can write, and I loved telling stories, and I loved weaving together uh, disparate ideas into a story, and that, for me, was just what the heart of journalism was about. So I decided I was going to be a journalist and you know, started off uh, in, at the CBC, which is a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto. Then I was at a foreign bureau briefly. Um, and at the time, the bottom was falling out of the media world. You know, so the business model was sort of falling apart when I got into it, and it wasn't clear anymore how media stories were going to be told, right? And suddenly online comes around and, and there's this move from print and radio and traditional stuff to this very new exciting stuff. Um, and I got just as excited about that, mm. building those businesses, as I did about telling the story. But if there is a red thread that guides my entire career, it's actually storytelling. Like what a good journalist does is they take a lot of seemingly unrelated pieces of information and they weave it into something amazing, right? They try to present uh, not the facts always, but the truth. Mm -hmm. um, so that got me really excited. Can I get to the point of a story in an interesting way? Can I force someone to think differently about a topic? It could be global affairs. It could have been a, a bombing in, in Ireland or, uh, or some political event in Kenya. That, that was the thing I loved to do, but I loved to weave a story that would make people actually listen to it. And when I moved into design, um, I realized that my job hadn't particularly changed. You know, I was still exercising the same basic muscles, which yeah. is what are some of the insights that I can figure out about the world? How do I weave a narrative? And how do I take you along for the ride? You know, that is actually the act of design for me and how storytelling plays into that. You know, people, everyone loves a good story and everything you're doing is in, is in service of a narrative that I want you to go on with me and that I want you to join with me. So I don't, I see myself as just a principal storyteller now. I, I wonder if you would have gotten any of that experience um, or even known that you had this muscle 
um, of storytelling if you think if you had gone to design school like do you, do you think like, have you I ever thought it. about that yeah I don't think so I don't think so it's certainly not when I would have gone through design school I don't think story I don't think people were aware of story in the same way um, so no I think I had to but like I once had a friend say you know design is too important to be left to the designers right and, it is, yeah. uh, and, and there's there's a certain amount of truth just like just like storytelling is too important to be left to the authors only you know there's there's I think this is just a fundamental part of the human experience that everyone inherently responds to. Mm -hmm. And if you can tap into that, then you have a magical brand, you have a magical company, you have a magical business. Yeah. Um, because you're not fighting against human nature, you're actually leaning way, way into it, yeah. to how humans respond. What do, you, what do you think some of the other advantages are of like not and this, I mean, I, design schools obviously yeah. teaches you a lot of the core principles For of sure. design, teaches you the craft. But like, there are advantages, I, I'd imagine, to, yeah. to not going to design school yeah. and coming to design later in life yeah. after having done other things, right? So I'm just curious if you like, what are some of the other advantages you think? Um, that's a that's a good question. I think there's sort of two big advantages. One is. I think if you're a naturally curious person, hmm. you tend to be a really good designer, right? Uh -huh. So if you've had a, an, a career that's gone like this, I'm not worried about, I actually like that when I look at CVs, oh, this person has been all over the place. That's cool, yeah. That generally suggests to me that they're extremely curious yeah. and they're smart and they get things done and they can figure it out. And a great designer can do that. You, I mean, I've designed cat food packaging <laughs> and you know, from the absurd to the divine, but I have always find something in it that's amazing that I can get behind. Cool. So we can disrupt healthcare, reimagine healthcare, or I can change the lid on a can of Friskies. <laughs> and there's still something pretty amazing in that. Yeah. I don't need to be the world's best designer to do it. I just need to understand how to apply, how to apply some of these yeah. principles to both of those. Um, so again, I think anything that shows you have a lot of diverse curiosity and a lot of different kind of interests is good. The other thing I think the advantage is I, I didn't have any rules when I came to it. I didn't really know right. what best practices That's were, which I actually yeah. think served me very well. Ignorance yep. is bliss. In Ignorance moment. is a bliss, and it, it forces you to ask a lot of dumb questions, which actually end up being the breakthrough that you're looking for. You know, So I wasn't very precious about design. I just wanted things to be wonderful and be delightful, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to call that. I just wanted it to be amazing. Yeah. And learning how you can lean on design in some places, and, and other things, and you know, I don't, I don't dismiss the business or the data or the things that feel somehow opposite, they are not, but they feel opposite to design, those have an important role too. So I didn't, I never felt territorial or feeling like I'm coming here as a designer with a capital D. Yeah. I felt I'm coming here as a team member who understands the role of design and story. I wanna weave that in in a way that's gonna convince you back on my journalist training, right? Like I wanna convince you of my point of view and take you along. That's interesting. Um, you earlier mentioned the Pixar narrative. Yeah. I want to go back to that for a second. Yeah. Uh, the narrative arc that Pixar uses. I right. think there's like a book written on it. Yeah. Now, right? Yeah. Um, how do you like? How do you apply it? Yeah. What, like, what is your version of Pixar's narrative yeah. on, on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, yeah. it, it, I mean, it depends. But you, but you know, great stories always have some of the basic same components to them, right? Yeah. So you have the status quo. You have the thing that interrupts that suddenly. Yeah. You have someone or something or a company that has to find a way around that to bring back to resolution and some new level of understanding, right? So these are some basic principles. So if I'm even designing uh, a sales pitch, I'll think about that and say, look, this is a status quo. It's very, it's very solution selling, right? If you're a st typical sales guy, but really yes. it's like, look, I often say to people, you know, there's five of us in the room right now. At least three of us are going to die from a 
disease that we gave ourselves. Oh God. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, wow. that's very that's, different. It's us. That's, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, probably the three of us. For sure. It's definitely me. It's definitely me. But, um, but that's very different than saying 86 million Americans have yeah. type 2 diabetes. You know, that's not compelling. Um, but a principle of Pixar is getting it down to the human story. Yeah. So it's mm. you and it's you and it's me. Yeah. And of the three of us, the two of us are not going to live as long as we were supposed to. And we're not going to live well either along the way. And that, for me, is the hook that you grab them with, you know? And, and that's how you start to tell them on the journey. You thought this, you thought that the way to cure it was through drugs and getting a procedure and getting a bypass or whatever it might be. But in fact, it's this other thing. Mm. And here's why that's so much more interesting for you. Like there's some basic ideas that should apply to everything you do. Um, even when we were redesigning our website, we had a lot of conversations about, you know, we're an interesting business because we're B to B to C and D to C, like we're every acronym you can imagine. <laughs> so, um, but it got to the point where I felt like as a team, we were getting twisted up in that. I said, guys, forget it. We are H to H. We are a human to human business. Mm. Forget everything else. People do not behave that differently at work. You know, you and I are not having a B2B conversation right now, you know, and I don't, I don't walk in the office right now and say, cool, I'm at work, let me put on my B2B persona. And yeah, right. like, leave my B2C at the door. Yeah, my B2C stays yeah. in the car, you right. know, waiting for me to get home. So once you can get past that, you say, if you, as long as you talk to people like they're a human being who have basic human needs and interests and think, make decisions the way they always do, it just clarifies what you're your job is to do. So like when we were designing the website, at one point we started getting twisted. Well, do we need to have an enterprise section and then a participant section? And then I was like, guys, forget it. You know, the truth is if we do really good job on the participant side, yeah. the enterprise are going to love it. You know, they'll, they can make the leap to say, wow, that is what I could offer my employees or my health plan members. Um, we also made the decision to lead with the ultimate objective of this company, right, which is we, we inspire people to be their own cure, um, which is a really powerful idea. And it's not about a better, it's not about a better, it's not about preventing chronic disease or all these other things, that, that's part of it. But the core human benefit is that I get to cure myself. And we often talk about like stories where, where there's that magical moment. So if you think about the Wizard of Oz, right? I always talk about the Wizard of Oz with the team. And there's that moment where Dorothy at the very end, the good witch is saying to her, she's saying, I wanna go home. And the good witch says, well, you know, my darling, you've, you've, all, you've had the power all along. Just tap your feet together, you know? We often compare what we're doing to stories that we know. It's like, wow, you actually, right now, mm. you can completely, or almost certainly, 75% of the time, you can cure yourself. Mm. You've always had the power, and our job as a company, as a brand, is to unleash that within you and to bring it out of you. But it's yours. It's yours on the inside. So it's a story you tell yourself. It's a story you tell yourself. Right. And it's, but it's true. You know, it's a true story. I also say to guys, like, look, we are not, marketing brand is not myth-making, right? I'm not here to make a myth. I'm, I'm here to tell the truth. And if you can, if your product does the right thing in the right way, then you have an amazing situation as a designer where you just get to tell this truth in the most impactful way possible. So that's a lot of what I see, what we're trying to do here, is just tell the truth well. Um, and that's a part of, of how design and storytelling play together. So you were at IDEO before you came to Amada. Mm -hmm. um, what's so interesting is, I mean, the lineage of IDEO is, is amazing. Of all the guests on our on our on our series here, a lot of them started yeah. their careers in IDEO, yeah. like where they truly began to think about design the way that they continue to think about it today, yes. right? Um, 
<laughs> what what is it about I like what are the principles that you were taught there that you continue to use today and yeah. what are, what are some ideas that are probably not obvious to people yeah. but um, to you is just obvious now yeah. because of your your time at IDEO. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think anyone who's worked at IDEO owes a huge debt to to that company and to the people there. So I learned so much there and I and I and I constantly go back to it. So one thing I remember, I came before IDEO was at a fairly traditional company that did things in a kind of traditional way. So I used to sit on a lot of focus groups, yeah. you know, behind a mirror and listen to users reflect on our product and give us feedback. Yeah. And it always felt weird to me to do it that way, but they, you know, they said we have to remove bias from the room and we yeah. really need to get the real answer. And that felt like, okay, we're gonna sit and do this. Yeah. At IDEA, it was totally the opposite. Uh, it was like, we're gonna put bias into the room because we don't, you're never gonna get someone's real opinion when they're sitting around a white table. It's a sterile environment. In this it's horrible sterile environment yeah. with someone who's reading off a, a clipboard questions that they've been given mm. without latitude to do much more. So yeah. one of the very first projects I did at IDEO was for a skincare company. Yeah. They were doing the really innovative thing in this skincare brand and packaging. And so we held what I called an unfocused group. So I was like, you know what, I really want to get some insights from these women that are honest, that are not, not something I could find on a quant survey. Yeah. So we held a cocktail hour, essentially, at an IDEO studio. Uh, we filmed it. Um, I got everybody drunk. <laughs> I said it was a party, like we're just here to have a good time. I, I drank with every, I wanted, them, I wanted them to feel relaxed and comfortable. And I didn't ask any questions of the first hour because I knew it was gonna take at least that long for people to forget that there were cameras, forget that they were at a focus group and just start having a good time. And we just had a very fleet, I had a, I had a list of questions much like what you have. It was not overly prescriptive. It was a general sense of what I wanted to learn. And I let the women lead the conversation for me. And by the end of the night, we had women crying. We had them arguing with each other. We had them laughing. I mean, we had them telling me something that was actually true about how they felt about their skin and what they needed, what they needed from a company. Mm -hmm. And there's no way I would have ever gotten that in a traditional remove bias focus group. Um, another example is I went, I remember we were working with, um, a formula, like baby formula company, and they had designed a really interesting, they had an idea for a kind of a, a formula that would sit on your counter, you know, like an aseptic room temperature, you could, like a beer keg of baby formula. And we went into a woman's house, and she was, you know, just telling us about what her rituals were around feeding, and, and she, and I asked her, I was like, hey, do you ever feel guilty for feeding your baby formula? And I remember I had people going like, like that's <laughs> a hard question. That's a hard yeah. question. Yeah. That's a touchy. And a traditional focus group won't go there. Yeah. And but at the time I had a lot of empathy. I just had my second child. I kind of knew what she was thinking. She's like, no, 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 I don't feel guilty. Not at all. And I said, cool, where do you keep your formula? Can we see it? And so she took us to her pantry and it was buried way deep behind the cereals. Mm. And I went, why are you hiding it? Like, uh -huh. if you're not ashamed, why are you hiding this way? But she's like, well, but, and then all of a sudden you realize she is ashamed and mm. this is a big deal to her. Mm -hmm. And you realize as a designer, I need to make sure that she feels that it's okay to feed formula if you need to. And I don't want you to feel guilty for not doing it. And, and all these other things that this brand needed to accomplish, right? That only comes out of that messy, highly qualitative, um, unfocused group style that I learned at IDEO, right? Like getting real empathy for people and really get, I would rather have one very deep conversation with you mm. 
than 100 shallow conversations with people like you. I think I'll learn more about the 100 by going deep with one mm. than I will by going shallow with everyone. You know, And that's a very different mindset than traditional market research, right? Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting the show. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to get a domain, create a website, or build an online store. They have beautiful, award-winning designer templates and 24-7 customer service. Our project, High Resolution, is on Squarespace. We chose it because it just made sense. We had a lot of research, writing, preparation for our interviews, and traveling to do. We just didn't have the time to waste figuring out how to style or build our site. So we just hopped on Squarespace, checked out their templates, and picked the one that worked for our brand and our style. We were done in less than a day. So if you've been thinking about starting your own website or even online store, start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use the offer code HIGHRESOLUTION, that's one word, to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their deep understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Airbnb, and Netflix. Let me tell you three reasons why I'd use it. One, poor communication is one of the biggest blockers for talented teams. Two, when you don't get feedback from others early and often, you can get lost in the woods, and that's just bad for everyone. And three, without a prototype, it can be hard to show others your full vision for a design. Envision solves all of that. You can rapidly prototype at the front end of the design process and collaborate across every stage of the project. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com and use our access code INV dash high resolution for three months free. Okay, so you've spoken about a lot of the principles that you learned in your journalism career, um, things that you brought over from IDEO, very powerful stuff. Um, I'm really curious about how you brought those principles into the healthcare industry, which is very old, yeah. um, moves a lot slower than traditional like tech startups, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot more people who you have to convince. Yeah. That's a yeah, great question. I mean, I think one thing we did when we started this company was, and, and I credit the founder, Sean Duffy, for this, was have a sense of humility. I know it's very tempting in the design mm. world and in Silicon Valley to say, well, we're disrupting, we're yeah. disrupting, we're ignoring the old rules, we're just circumventing them. But I don't know that that's always the right thing to do. And uh, a lot of what I learned at IDEA was to have empathy. So I wanted to start by having empathy for the healthcare system as it is. There are a lot of things that are really powerful and work really well about it, as much as we want to dismiss it out of hand. So I think one of the things we did was, as a, as a founding team or as a, you know the initial group of us, was to actually know what we were talking about and know what we were disrupting and know why it was that way and get to talk to people who are leading health plans and leads of benefits at employers or a chief medical officer and understand a little bit more what makes them tick and where they see opportunity and where we're being too myopic in how, how we're thinking about this, this space. So, one, so step one was just build some real empathy no matter what you're doing, no matter how broken you think the system is, there's probably some very interesting insight and logic to that system right now. Be sure you know what that is before you decide it's mm -hmm. right for disruption. Mm -hmm. um, you see, I see that in education all the time. There's a lot of people who want to disrupt education, yeah. and I think there's a lot of reasons to do that. There's actually a lot about education that works really, really well, and just because you don't like 
what fifth grade was like for you doesn't mean that that model needs to be totally changed completely. You know, there's a lot to, to find out that there's a lot of power in what's happening now. And make sure you know what that is so you don't lose yeah. it along the way. You can evolve it, but don't, don't destroy it. Um, yeah. So step one was to gain empathy um, and to really understand all the stakeholders. Uh, step two was to be as human as we possibly could, right? Was to say, let's design something that you want to do not that you have to do. So much in healthcare is about taking your medicine figuratively and literally, you know, and it's never pleasant. So a question we asked ourselves is, if your health is truly one of the most important things, if not the most important thing in your life, why does it always feel like such a drag? And is there a way to design it so that it feels delightful and effortless and fun? Do I, can I make logging into the Omada program as interesting and exciting as logging into Facebook every morning. Mm. There's no reason why it couldn't be that way. And in fact, I would argue there's a moral imperative to make sure it, it is that way. Um, so that was another thing that we, we went back to first principles on, was just to say, let's design a program that everyone is going to want to do and will be happy to do and will willingly do it. Because if we can't do that, we don't have anything. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing is I think, where kind of business and design comes together, right? So we decided very early on, we did not want to be digital snake oil, right? And there's a lot of that out there in, in healthcare and digital health. So Sean Duffy and Adrian James, two of our co-founders said, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we are going to design a business model that forces us to do the right thing. And the way to do that is to have an outcomes-based pricing, right? So this is where you get a business designer designing a model to force uh, an overall user experience that is the best it can possibly be. So what we said is people aren't going to pay to use our program. They're going to pay when our program works, which is very different in healthcare. It's very, very radical. But it forces, it holds our feet to the fire. Because what we're, not, we're saying you don't just get to, we don't make money unless we help you mm -hmm literally get You're there. paying us to fix a problem, we're going to fix the problem, yeah. and that's yes. when you'll pay us. You're not paying yeah. us to try. You're yeah. paying yeah. us to actually fix it. That's interesting. Um, which is very, very radically different. But again, that's not, that's a really good example of where design overlaps with business. Design plus business, design plus finance. Like, you can get really, really clever and figure out that that one business decision is actually what allowed us to focus on design. We needed this program to work. That's it has awesome. to work. Yeah. So, so, so it sounds like you, you guys created this forcing function. Yes. For not just quality. Yes. But efficaciousness. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and, exactly. And, and designs feet were really to the fire yes. to make sure that yeah. that, that the outcomes yes. uh, reflected uh, the promise the company yeah. was yes. posing in the in the market. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question about. Um, so I loved your framing of the three things. Yeah. Uh, empathy. Um, understanding the problem, first principle mindset, yes. and where design and business comes together. Yeah. There was something interesting you said about the first one, right. where coming into healthcare, a very old industry, there were a lot of things that actually worked. Yeah. Um, and that's a really strong contrast yeah. to uh, yeah. how Silicon Valley works, sure. right? Where it's like everything is broken. You yeah. hear like email's broken, yes. education's broken, right. like healthcare is broken, yeah. everything's broken, everything right. needs to be disrupted, right? right. And here you're saying is, well, if you come with a sense of empathy and a beginner's mind and you look around, you actually notice that yeah. maybe there are five things that are broken, but three things that work well, yes. right? I'm really curious about the things that you actually found that work well in healthcare yeah. um, that the startup yeah. industry is just not aware about. Yeah, that is a really good question. I mean, so I'll give one example is, is um, peer-reviewed journals, mm -hmm. all right? The process of peer review is actually really critical in, in healthcare. And 
that has saved so many lives. I mean, the, uh, the ability to replicate someone else's results cannot be, the, the importance of that cannot be overstated. And, and, you know, that's why we don't use leeches anymore and yeah. all those other things, right? Like at some point people went, hmm, wait a second. And so one thing we said was like, look, let's understand that a lot of this feels like it ought to work. And as designers and as, you know, tech people, we think it should work. But let's question whether it does. Yeah. So I'll give one example. Um, we all know that there's all these fitness trackers, right, out there. And everyone gets excited because, like, oh, if you track, if you get more data and you track yourself, that's going to lead to better behavior. We know that the average fitness tracker is worn for about three weeks, and then it's put in a drawer and yeah. it's never worn again. Like that's Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> the, same here. That's a pretty amazing statistic, right? So. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy for tech to say, well, it's cool and I like it and I like tracking myself. And I'll yeah. say, yeah, but you're a triathlete and you would have been fine with or without this tracker. Mm -hmm. You're not the person that I need to help. The person I need to help lives in rural Georgia and is a single mother and lives in a food desert where she has a convenience store near her, not a Whole Foods. Like, I'm solving for her because I think you're going to be fine. Um, and so a lot of that peer review forces you to ask yourself, does this work for me? Or does this work for everyone? Mm. We also made a decision early. It's very tempting in this business to say, can we tweak our numbers somehow, right? So why don't I just pick the people for whom it will be easy for us to help, who have easy lives and have access to money and time and the resources they need to take care of themselves. That can be tempting early days. And I remember there was a conversation way back when where we said, is that what we're going to do? But we go back to the core of what our company is about, right, which is helping everybody avoid or reverse chronic disease. It's not helping the elite or helping those who need it the least. Yeah. So we just said, you know what? Even if that affects our numbers, even if we know that certain people will not do as well in the program because of a lot of other things, we want to be the best solution for everyone. So that we can still say, yeah, that person might be harder to treat than a wealthy, white, 40-year-old male in San Francisco, but we're still going to be better at helping them than anything else on the market. And that's a huge win as far as I'm concerned. So. Yeah, I mean, peer review is really, really important and making sure that you're designing for all, not designing for the people who need it the least. Uh, and healthcare you, kind of forces you to do that. You don't get to pick and choose, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't get into healthcare if you, you're pick and choosing the people that you're helping. The thing I also find interesting is when you guys entered the market, you didn't, you didn't kind of step in and assign incompetence to the entire no. healthcare industry. No. Uh, you want to use sugar, not yes. poison, if you want to, you know, yes. you, you need allies Absolutely. in a massive, Absolutely. Legacy, uh, not organization, but sure. sure, certainly a market, right? Yes. Um, is that advice you'd give every startup founder and it, every designer and every engineer trying to build a company in a space that they're trying to quote disrupt? Yeah, it, it yeah. is. And I've, it's yeah. funny, I've gotten in some fairly heated conversations with entrepreneurs who totally disagree with me, which mm. is like, no, you need that level of arrogance. You need that sort of factor. You need to just build it from scratch because you can get tangled in the legacy and get pulled down. Mm. Um, I disagree. I don't know what harm comes from truly understanding how it works. Sure. Even, you know, you have to be prepared to say, yes, I know I know the world says it can't be done. I know the world says it can't get better. I'm going to have to believe that it can, yeah. right? That is the definition of entrepreneurial, right? Is that just insane belief that things can be better? Mm. But, but I, you know, we met a lot of amazing doctors and clinicians who've spent their lives working on this, who are very, very smart and have a lot to teach us. I think the second you think you can't be taught, it's over. Mm. It's over for you. And a lot of the companies right now that, you know, who do amazing work and whom I love, but the industries they disrupt, yeah, they've, they've managed to grow 
fastest companies, but they're yeah. facing a lot of social pressures from the other side. They've yeah. done a lot of accidental damage along the way that they're now needing to figure out what do we do about that. You know, and I think had there been a little bit more understanding going in, urban planning, you know, mm. Mm. <laughs> you might have realized that, gee, if I can talk to some people about urban planning and gentrification as I'm building this, I might realize going in that we might have an unintended consequence here that at least we want to be aware of going in. So we are not dealing with PR issues three or five years down the line where we're scrambling and we have communities fighting to kick us out. Like that to me is the result of a failure of empathy in the beginning yeah. and a failure to learn, to just know this is what happens if we do X. This, these things get will get affected. We can choose to do it anyway, but at least you know that's gonna come. Um, so yeah, again, I think you can disrupt without being dismissive. Yeah. Mm -hmm of people, of an industry, um, and that's that's the tack we, we decided to take. So it sounds like a balance. It's like the empathy to see how it works and then the boldness to make change where it's needed. I think that's beautiful. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, you should know what you don't know yeah. and, and then decide to move forward anyway. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. I think that's fine. That puts you in the most powerful position as a designer, in my opinion. So just dovetailing on that, I'd like to walk into a room with you and Kaiser, right? Yeah. Like one of your big customers, yeah. right? Um, and on, on the one hand, you have this institution that's been around, around for a long time, that's a massive institution across the entire country. On the yeah. other hand, you've got you. Yeah. Um, and some of the new ideas and perspectives that you're trying to bring to the table to work with a company like Kaiser, right? Mm -hmm. Take us into that meeting room. What do you guys talk about? How are you using design principles to help lead the, or are you even leading the conversation? Yeah. I'm making assumptions here, but um, yeah. You know, I actually have a lot of heart for Kaiser. Um, they have. In fact, they've partially invested in our company as well. Um, you know, I don't, it's funny, I would often go into those conversations assuming that, ugh, I'm gonna have to really, like, I'm gonna have to put up my elbows and show yeah. them what's what. Um, more and more I'm finding that's not the case. I think a lot of these older or more established traditional institutions are very open to this. I think yeah. they want to understand how we work and, yeah. and they are not, you know, it's very different though, to be fair to them, when you are dealing with billions and billions of dollars versus yeah where we might be today, you know? And I think there's a healthy respect there where we say, we want to learn from you and what keeps you up at night and where this is painful for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope you'll do the same. And so far that's been the case. Um, you'll find that there's big companies like, you know, big banks are looking at Venmo and going, what the heck, you yeah. know? <laughs> but to be fair, Venmo doesn't have the pressures that like a JP Morgan has right now. You know, yeah. they have slightly, it's easy to praise them and they're doing a great job, but, mm -hmm. but it's a different scale right now. And so I find that in these conversations, luckily because of so many industries have been disrupted, I think there's a humility on both sides now, which is really refreshing. I don't think that we have, we, we don't come in as conquering heroes, but we also don't come in needing to fight. We come in with, there's a lot of curiosity from their side and we're just as curious about them. We want to be as big or bigger as Kaiser is one day, so yeah. so we start going. Let's learn. Let's learn from you first. Um, but again, when we show them a beautifully designed pitch and we show them incredible results, and they love it. I mean, they they don't they can't do it. They might not do it themselves, but they love what we're doing and and they appreciate it. So so it's not a fight. Is the honest answer. So we've spoken a lot about storytelling. Yeah. Um, something that we spoke about offline before was this concept of a manifesto. Yeah. Right. Um, and creating one that a company rallies behind yes. and kind of guides it forward, right? Yes. I'm really curious to know what that is, like what does, what does that even look like? Yeah. Um, and then as a follow-on, how can a team actually create their own? Yeah, 
the great question. Um, so for me, the manifesto is actually really, really important. Yeah. And, uh, and it may be because I come from a writing background, but I found there's nothing that kind of galvanizes the troops quite as much as this idea that we have this rallying cry that this mm. is what we're here to accomplish. Um, so at certainly at IDEA when I worked with different companies and, and at Omada definitely, we had a moment where we were like, what is our rallying cry? Like, what are we actually trying to do? Not a tagline, not something that you say that sounds like pithy copy, but actually like this is the change we are trying to create in the world, you know? And, you know, we can write that in 10 or 12 sentences or four, it doesn't matter, but we wanted to write something that was very clear that this is, this is what we're doing and why it matters and why you should come with me. Um, and once we had that, it was, you know, it's a very grounding place to start. Because again, it goes back to story. It's not, it's not corporate. It's not our annual goals. It's not Q4 results. You know, it's not our KPIs, oh my God. It mm. is the story you would tell your friends or your parents or your kids about why you do what you do. And I think everyone responds to that emotionally. It doesn't matter if you're the CFO or the chief design officer or the intern who started. Everyone wants to feel that they are part of something bigger. And a manifesto is a really nice way to do that. You can do it at the corporate level or the company level, but we also have done it at the chronic disease level, right? The topic level. Yeah, so we yeah. have, we've just written a chronic disease manifesto, which is like, hey world, this is what's going on in chronic disease, preventable chronic disease, not only in the country, but in the world. This is why you really need to care about it. And here are some, here's some light that we see that we're going to walk into because we think that there's something amazing that's to come in this space. Um, so writing it down, sharing it as a story, I just think if you can't write a manifesto, I'd be worried. If you can't figure out what your manifesto is or the change you're trying to create, and if you can't put it into words that get someone excited, um, I would say you got, you got something with your business that needs to be figured out. Does that, uh, does that come from a leader, though? Like it's, it's like when I think of manifestos, I think of things like principles and values mm -hmm. yeah. of, of teams, organizations. Of, yeah. And the thing I've always struggled with is how much like, is the onus on everyone to kind of band together and figure out what we believe in so that we become authors yes. of the manifesto? Or is it, is it that the leadership is strong and the vision is strong and the manifesto uh, builds uh, from the vision that is set by the leader and that people just band around that or not, right? So like, that's something I've, I've always wondered. You know, I actually think it kind of goes like this, quite honestly. You know, so there's, of course, the founders or the, the first people at a company are setting some, I, they have some vision of what they're trying to do, whatever yeah. it is. But in our case, um, all of our, you know, all of our core statements about who we are, our values in particular, they were co-written by everyone at the company. In fact, yeah. we opened it up to everyone. We kind of had a first pass, which is this is what we think we're doing and how we need to do it. This is how we're going to behave. What did that process look like when you said you opened it up to everyone? So we literally emailed out, you know, we had a lot of conversations with the entire team, but mm -hmm. we then emailed out, here's the, I mean, I wrote a first draft along the CEO and I sat and wrote a draft together. We co-wrote it. Mm. Um, but then we put it up and people started editing it. Mm. And then we had you know, people who raised their hands and said, I really want to be involved in that process. They got off sort of in a subgroup and they really refined them and they made them so much better, by the way, yeah. so much better than what I initially wrote or what our CEO, we, I was like, this could not have been better. And yeah. the best part is that people feel real ownership over that now. Yeah. It's not, I mean, right. nothing is more painful than corporate values that have no relationship what's, I mean, Enron yep. wrote corporate values, right? There's a lot of companies that do that. But when you have people helping co-design them, co-create them, and 
we constantly refer to them. So when you're talking with your manager or in a meeting and I'm giving you praise, I'm referring back to one of those values that you have shown, that you've brought to life, right? So it feels like a real meaningful thing. It's not some empty platitude that sounds good, but could be any company in anywhere. You know, it, it's very unique to us and what makes, I think, Omada special and what makes us tick. So yeah, co I think if it comes from on high, you're in trouble. Uh, it needs to be co-designed yeah. to some degree and it needs to be constantly referenced to some degree, right? And when you get lost and when you're not sure how to make a decision, you should be able to go back to that manifesto and it should be able to set you straight, right? So when we were lost, we were never lost. But if mm. we ever had a moment where we said, should we cherry pick the kind of people we get into the program just to make sure that we have the best possible results? You go back to our manifesto and you say, no way. It mm. is not worth it. That is not what we're here to do. We're gonna help everybody. Even if it temporarily depresses our results, it's gonna make us better in the long term. So the, the, the leader kind of points in a direction. Yes. But the people build the tracks the train can ride on to yeah. get there. That's basically you the said thing. it better. You said it better than I did. That I think that's exactly right. So we, we spoke about story arcs, right? Yeah. Um, and the manifesto sounds like it is a story in some sense that the company is telling itself. Yeah. Right. Um, if <clears throat> if I wanted to write one today for a company, say I'm a startup here, I have 20 yeah. people in my team. What kind of story arc should I follow in my manifesto? Yeah, I might. I mean, I think you can. The, the, I would almost just, to start you off, I'd go back to the most traditional one, right? Which is, today there is, tomorrow there ought to be, mm. we believe this because, mm. and we're gonna achieve it this way. Mm. You know, like, it can be as simple as that, but if you can get that down, I mean, if you think about big, really interesting companies, right? Like, like Airbnb, for example, which I love, you know. Um, it started as a way to get cheaper hotel rooms, ultimately, right? There's not much of a manifesto there, like pay less for a hotel rooms is not super exciting. Where they've evolved to is actually about world citizenship, which mm. for me is an incredible idea, and I can get behind that. And, and that, I think, can rally a lot of new ideas, and it has, you know, and bringing people together, um, being able to live anywhere. That, for me, is the process of getting from your initial thing that you're the benefit, the initial core benefit to something much, much bigger, which I think expands the platform for how your business grows over time. But like, that's a manifesto, right? That you can belong anywhere is a very, very big idea at the manifesto level, as opposed to, I just saved $50 a night yeah. renting in Alameda or whatever it might be. What's Omada's manifesto? Well, there's, it's got a few components to it. I mean, and fundamentally, what we're trying to change in the world is we want to inspire and enable people anywhere and everywhere to live free of chronic disease, right? Um, that is what we're trying to do. Uh, we have a broader, which I can share, but a broader chronic disease manifesto, which is like, hey, people need to understand the state of the world right now and why you have to pay attention. We're actually doing a very beautiful sort of stop motion animation to bring that oh, to life. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be really cool. And, and it's interesting because there's not a lot of business reason to do that. Uh, and if I said, hey guys, you mind if I take three or four months of three or four people to do this kind of expensive thing hmm. that is a chronic, called the Chronic Disease Manifesto, I think most businesses would be like, what, you know, why? why? But what's a pleasure is no one, no one batted an eye here. Everyone thought like, yeah, we need to do that because we want to have a larger purpose in the world yeah. and we need people to understand the problem. And part of the issue for us is that people don't realize that this is an issue. Whenever I say there's three of us and two of us are gonna die, die from pre preventable chronic disease, everyone's always surprised. Yeah. They always assume, oh, I thought it was gonna be cancer or right. you know something, right. no. It's, it's something you could have avoided. That's a really big deal. And we need people to wake up to that.
So these next set of questions, uh, we reached out to the community and we asked them, what are some of the things that are burning up in their minds? Okay. Right? So we have a few that we're going to ask every guest. Okay. We'd like to get into that with you. Okay. Okay, so we're going to kick off with this one. How do you explain <coughs> the role of design to people at Omada? I think design is a way to de-risk go-to-market, if I'm being very pragmatic okay. about mm -hmm. it. Um, because it allows us to understand who we're serving better, to connect with their humanity, mm. to be humble enough to iterate along the way and improve, and to make sure they come along for the ride with us. Um, in general, though, I don't explain design. I always show instead of tell. Yeah. I think it's just the fastest way. So. I don't have, when someone new joins, I don't sit them down and go, well, let me tell you why design <laughs> is so important here. I show them what we have, and I walk them through some of our core assets and the writing on our walls, and I think they instantly get it that way. We're in a privileged position now where people know better. People joke, like they'll come up to me and be like, oh, I'm really sorry, you know, look at this, can you help? But I never help by reskinning something. I always help by saying, let's talk about it. Like, tell me what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Like, for whom and why. Yeah. All right, well then I would think about it this way. Like, I'm always trying to teach that, that that's why we're doing this, to actually have just a bigger impact in the world, not to make looking, something look pretty. So yeah, that's how I show. I show as much as possible. That's awesome. And how is the design um, organization structured here at Omada Health? Yeah, so we have, um, so we're actually restructuring it a little bit right now, but we have a couple big design teams. So we have sort of brand and marketing writ large. That's that's my team. So that is, we have you know a, a director of copy and content and campaign leads and filmmakers and motion designers. I mean, we have the design team there that works on any kind of marketing project that we have going on. But they help us define what the project is, by the way. It's not, it's not a marketer being like, can you please design this self? It's not like that. It's, we want to achieve this. This is something that's important for the business. Help us think differently about this. And that's when all sorts of cool stuff happens. It's like, well, that could be an animation. Or what if we did it this way? Or what if we made this a beautiful infographic? Or it shouldn't be a video. It should be something like this. We just have this amazing moment where the creatives and the suits or the marketers come together and really have this this moment of what could this be? What should this be yeah. if we want to achieve X? Um, so we have brand and marketing, uh, with, which has in-house design. You know, We brought it all in-house. I chose very deliberately. I didn't want to work with agencies if I could avoid it. Not because they don't have value, they do, but I needed us to develop that muscle ourselves. Right? I wanted us to know how to do it when push came to shove, not have to defer to an agency. I just, from the ground up, I wanted to be able to do it. We can choose not to, um, but I wanted us to be able to. And then we also have the product design team. So. The designers actually have a very interesting community and they're always sharing work with each other. So the product designers, if they get stuck or they just want to check in, we'll have a design circle and yeah. all the designers come together and give critique on it. Everyone here has been through our program. Everyone understands how it works. So everyone has really useful feedback for each other. Yeah. Um, the product designers also have really good feedback for marketing. And what we're trying to do is say, we want to have one unified experience. So from the moment you ever find out about Amada, mm -hmm to the time two years later when you've graduated from the program and you're telling all your friends, that should be one coherent, doesn't need to be consistent, but one coherent design experience that you know you're in the right place. Um, so the two teams do a lot of just critique and collaboration with each other. And then we are currently looking for a principal brand designer who's gonna mm. sit over top of product and marketing mm. and just make sure that we have that overall look and feel aesthetic as tight as it possibly can be. Um, so that, that, that role's open right now. Cool. <laughs> Well, you guys know that, so there we go. Now you know. Um, well, so when you're the only designer, 
just try and picture a startup for yeah. a second, or even a medium-sized company where yeah. you might have one or two, maybe three designers. Yeah. Um, how how should those designers convince leadership that design is important? Well, I think it's it's step one is stop thinking about design as a th a thing you do, mm. <laughs> but a way that you operate instead. Um, if I were the one designer, though, being very pragmatic, I would try to find an opportunity to show them what I mean yeah. rather than tell them. You're never going to argue your way into great design. Yeah. You're just going to have to convince them by being like, look at this. Yeah. This is what if we did it this way instead. Um, I think also you would point to some of the big juggernauts right here. Like around you, it's obvious that if you can have Airbnb worth more than Hilton Hotels right now <laughs> and not own a single hotel, design is on. Something's happening there that I need to pay attention to. You know, so... So I think there's a lot of just business case studies out there to say these two companies do the same thing in this, it, 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 for the same audience with the same business model, but this one won. Why is it? Well, it's probably about the user design. People yeah. just like it better. You yeah. know, Apple. You know, there's all sorts of good examples where a beautifully designed experience wins every time, yeah. and people know that. So I think I would, I would probably, if I were a designer, I would try to not use the language of design because there's too much bias. I would just use the language of good business, mm. which is, you know, de-risking, go to market, learning as you go, iterating, failing fast, failing cheaply, all those things I think are pretty appealing. So I would start there. Let design be the Trojan, let, let, let design come in through those yeah. conversations. Um, and at Omada Health, how do, how do you measure and present the results of design? That's a good question. So, I mean, luckily we have a product where we can prove design works because it either affects clinical outcomes or it doesn't, right? Yeah. So we can measure it very tangibly and say, you know, when we added this feature, when we added this video, when we changed this flow, people did better in the program. Mm -hmm. So we have a very, like, one-to-one -one way of saying, see, it's working, yeah. you know? And when we, when we do an A-B test and we remove it, they do more poorly, and therefore we want to have this design experience. However... Um, I would argue be careful with the data because there is a world where you'll make a small design decision and it doesn't seem to move the needle. That's not the time to abandon ship. You just need to have, I think, an inherent faith that great design matters, even if it doesn't show up in the numbers right away. Like the, the bend, the arc, is always going to arc towards design being important, even if at a discrete moment in time you can't prove it. You mm. know, So I think when you're going into these conversations, you need to teach people that this is not an overnight thing, yeah. but overall, I'm going to show you that over the years or over yeah. the quarters, this is having a really important impact that's driving people to our company. But I might not be able to prove it on Wednesday. Yeah. Right? So I want you to be able to hold those, those two ideas at the same time, which is data is going to support it, but it's not irrefutable evidence. And we need to have a philosophy that we're okay with that as we, as we go this way. So we can end with this question here. Mm -hmm. As the purpose and function of design has been evolving and continues to evolve, uh, what are some of the roles and methods you think uh, will start to emerge over the next five years? I think, I think one thing we're going to see is just a lot more diversity of the people who are brought to the table to solve a problem, right? So before, if you didn't have an MBA, you did not work mm. at certain businesses. Yeah. I think like the MFA might be the new MBA and that these kinds of people are going to be invited and yeah. seen as actual catalysts for problem solving at these kinds of companies. For me, that's hugely exciting. You know, As I look back to my degrees, and I think they're important, 
there's very little that I learned at the London School of Economics, though I loved it there, yeah. that is directly helping me today. Thank God, though, I had it because that got me to the table to begin with, but I didn't need it. So I would predict that in the next few years, people who used to be excluded from these conversations will suddenly be invited and their value will be seen. You know, they won't, we will open up, uh, we will open up the rooms to different kinds of people, different kinds of backgrounds by design because we know that they are going to influence and help us think differently about this problem. I think the old methods, the world is changing so rapidly that the old tools aren't serving us anymore and no. we have to be open that there must be some radically different approaches and perspectives that we constantly need to try. So it has yeah. to be a revolving door. Come on in. Like mm. everyone's welcome. Show me what you got. How would you how would you approach that? For me that is one of the most exciting things. It's interesting because even now as I interview people, I'm so much less concerned with pedigree mm. than I used to be, right? We actually end up just talking about who they are as a person and the kinds of problems they've solved in their lives and how they went about doing it. That tells me way more than anything I could read on a piece of paper about them, mm. you know? So, so I think what I predict will happen is there will be, I hope, I hope, a greater diversity of perspectives will be encouraged to join these brands and these businesses to open, to open people's perspectives even further once we see the power of doing so. That's my hope anyway. Wow, cool, thank you so much. Thanks. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that we covered with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us. You can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. We'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us. We want to converse with you. Uh, we're not going to leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel, they're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.